Welcome to the podcast of top executive coach, Tony Mayo. This podcast is a conversation with one of Tony's clients, Ron Diamond, management consultant and author of Enterprise Performance Management Done Right, published by Wiley. occurred for me when we were talking about working with a group of successful, committed business people and being held accountable for your uh, results. I was, we had our meeting in your VSOP group the other day, and I was presenting a topic about dealing with different kinds of companies. And your observation was one of the first series of questions that this group asked was what it was like to work with the people in that company. And uh, uh, I guess a sort of level, could you trust them? Were they trustworthy? Was it more interesting to work with one group than another? And we very quickly got to the, the fact that that's a big driver of satisfaction in your job and your working with clients is the kind of people that you're working with. That's uh, a great insight. It's a, and, and very clearly I got that in that entire group that that's one of the things that drive where they work, the people they hire and the customers that they deal with. I thought that was really good. You had a client once who said that the main bedrock of her uh, business philosophy was, I hire nice people. Yeah. <laughs> what she meant by that was people that she wanted to work with, that she respected, that she wanted to help develop, and that she felt were committed to the company's success and her success. And that since you hear they say, well, obviously, that's what you would do. But come on, when you're hiring people, is that what you're always thinking? <laughs> well, this resume is plausible. I could put up with that. <laughs> I mean, you know, people talking themselves into you know, hiring the minimum viable employee. Yeah. Uh, and they even write their job descriptions this way. This is a great tool that I learned from, I can't remember Dietrich's first name all of a sudden. What is, oh, I'm the Dietrich, Barry Deutsch. Yeah, uh, Barry Deutsch, he's a hiring consultant. One of the things he pointed out, and I summarized in a blog post that you can find it on my blog, on how to write a job description that attracts the right people. I think that's the title of it. So many job descriptions is minimum of so many years experience. Right. Must have this degree. Right. It's the minimum acceptable. Why would you go spending money on a search for the minimum acceptable? Mm. He said, describe breakout performance. And also, instead of describing the person, Describe the results that they would be producing and the kind of person who does that. For instance, I had someone who was hiring a, an administrative assistant. He traveled a lot and had a lot of uh, details around his company. So he needed someone to handle that stuff. And one of the things he put in his description was, are you the kind of person that when you do something with a group of friends is always the one who picks the place and makes the reservation? Uh-huh. Yeah. Always know figures out how people are going to get there on time. He wanted that personality. When people are hiring bookkeepers, I say there's a bookkeeper personality. They just don't feel comfortable until the accounts reconcile. It's like an itch you can't scratch. Mm. It's, can't, that's what you want. Not somebody who's willing to do it or might do it in an acceptable way. Yeah. Describe breakout performance and what it's like to work there. This is now when the internet was first taking over job searches some years back. I had a client who interviewed a couple of key employees about what it's like to work here and put that audio on his monster listing. So people could say, oh, that's what it's like to work here. The employees are talking mm. about how they 
uh, often go out to lunch together and, and talk about leisure activities and then realize how that relates back to their work. Or they understand that someone has a particular skill that they didn't know so they can enlist them into the next project. For the right people, that's very appealing. And it's credible because they're actually hearing the uh, employees say it. What would you say to somebody listening to this podcast that worked for a jerk? What coaching <laughs> would you give them about, we're not working for a person that you know, lights them up? Well, first of all, I have to remind myself to have compassion that some people, uh, they, they feel like they need the money, they need the security, they've got to put up with whatever they've got. Especially this past few years, the f- ability to move around has gotten difficult. But along with that compassion, I would try to help the person see what it's costing. They tend to focus on, well, I need this income, or I I can't change yet because I've changed my last two jobs too quickly, so I need to have a stability. There are all these rules and standards that uh, influence people. The next thing to start looking at is, what's your standard for jerk? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. is, is this person somehow have a brand on their forehead I'm a jerk in fact my parents raised me to be a jerk I get a degree in jerkness <laughs> and I'm doing my best it's just the label that you're putting on the person or even worse other employees are conspiring and discussing and labeling right. the person that way the first time this really came through to me that people aren't the way they say I am I'm saying the way they are I was early days of working with one of my first coaches, I was complaining about a boss who was not giving me the opportunities, recognition, I forgot what it was, something that I felt I, I deserved. And I said, you know, this guy, this guy's just, he's out to screw me every day. It's just driving me crazy. It's, it's, it's not a winnable game. Well, they didn't have that language at that point. And the coach says, yeah, I got it. Every morning I can picture him in front of the mirror Bring up his tie saying, I can't wait to get to the office and Tony today. <laughs> you really are the focus of his life. He's trying to mess with your career. Yeah. And he, my reaction was your reaction. Yeah. Well, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And the coach says, well, if that's not what he's doing, what might he be doing? I said, well, maybe he's worried about his job. Maybe there's a insecurity in, in his job. He's got to get certain results and he's doing his best to get them. Uh, or maybe he really doesn't like me. That's possible. Uh, maybe the, the things here he's doing will work out and I just don't see the bigger plan. He knows things that I don't know. You don't have to automatically come up with a charitable interpretation that everybody works for some loving, kind, wise leader. Right. Just realize that this label of jerk or difficult boss or conniver or cheapskate is a label that is put on the person that they, that isn't accurate. It's just a story. And there is a million other possible stories. But the story you have is affecting how you behave. And how you behave is affecting how that person behaves. Because mm. we're always interacting. We're not independent agents that do what we do regardless of what, how other people are behaving. Our actions are affecting each other. And it's just remarkable how many times I will go from having a label for someone to genuine curiosity. I don't know. I don't know what this person's intention is, what their values are, what they're trying to accomplish. And if I ask, something useful could happen. That has saved so many conversations. Soon after that one, 
that coaching thing, I, there, there was a, another salesperson, I was in sales at the time, another salesperson was hired who was conflicting with me over some accounts. I remember sitting with him in my sales manager's office and this other fellow said something. And I turned to him and I said, with genuine curiosity, are you trying to piss me off? <laughs> and it stopped him in his tracks because he was. <laughs> he was trying to light my fuse in front of my boss. But when I called him on it, yeah. he couldn't play that game anymore. Right. Uh, and he got more conciliatory. We got clear about how the territory should be split and who should handle its account. It was just miraculous wow. how by just naming uh, the game with curiosity, yeah. is this what you're doing? He could have come back and say, no, I don't mean to piss you off. I'm trying to accomplish this. And I go, oh, I can see why you'd want to accomplish that. Yeah. We are something we competitive. We don't have to be helping each other all the time. Yeah. So if you think you work for somebody, for a jerk, that you've labeled a jerk, the, the, the key is to be a little empathetic and put yourself in their shoes and, and think about what they're really thinking. And then to be genuinely curious and go talk to them. Look, this is how you occur for me. Remember, making something up, what's going on? That would be a very brave thing to do. Ah. In, in, in many situations, I've done that kind of thing. It works out really well. Yeah. Uh, in personal relationships, it works out very, you know, that's it's the go-to approach. With a boss, you might just try out different theories. Yeah. If you think the theory is, oh, gee, maybe he's under pressure for some particular deadline. You could say, I've been thinking a lot about my career and what you can do for me, but it occurs to me, you've got a lot of other responsibilities. Could you just share with me what else you're working on? And so maybe I'll hear something where I can adjust what I'm doing to support what you're up to. Or maybe your major priority doesn't affect me at all. And then I'll know that and I can stay out of your hair for a while. And sometimes they're jerks. You know, they're scared. Mm. They're incompetent. These things do happen. And you've, then you've got to say, am I willing to take some chances and go someplace else? Right. And so often people are reluctant to do that. You know, it's the devil you know, and so on. It's remarkable how people can accommodate themselves to situations that are just not helping them at all because they don't want to try something else. Is it the business, uh, for a small business, the business owner, or for a large business, a, a senior manager or an executive, is it their job to make sure those kinds of conversations are going on? Or do you expect this to happen organically? Or whose responsibility is to make sure this happens? Well, when you ask me, is it their job? What do you mean by that? Well, as an, let's say I'm an owner of a small, medium business. I want to make sure that people are working well together. I want to make sure that those kinds of conversations can be happening or those you know, misperceptions or potential problems are resolved. How do I make sure that that's happening? Yeah, that's why you and I get along so well, because that's what you think. Not everybody running an organization or a business is thinking that way. I remember, I went through a big transformation in my career. I was a very uh, Ayn Rand, objectivist, John Wayne, selfish, manipulate people approach to life. I gave it a good run. If it was going to work, it would have, (laughs) but it didn't. But during that period, uh, a couple of years after I had sold my company, someone said, well, what's it like being an employee now rather than running your own company? I said, well, there are 60 fewer people whose mistakes I'm responsible for. Wow. And I see it so differently now. Yeah. Uh, also, a project was coming to an end, and I was thinking about what's the next consulting assignment. So I went to my supervisor and asked, what's coming up? And he said, oh, that's funny you should ask, because I was just talking to Laura and John about this, which was his boss and his boss's boss. My immediate reaction was, oh, yeah, sure you were. The three of you are so concerned about me. 
Well, then again, the management found out, yeah, that is what you think about most of the time. If you're any good is, is how to develop your people and bring them along. So my attitude is just what you said. If the boss, whether of a supervisor, a small group, the owner of a company, the head of a division sees their job as making their people effective, it's going to go really well. Mm. But if they see it as, how do I manipulate them into this? How do I, uh, I manipulate the key word, mm-hmm. you know, it's from the Latin word for hand. You know, like I can get my hand on them and move them where I want to move them. Mm. It's impossible. It's frustrating. It's exhausting. But people try. It's much more effective and easier to give people a chance so they can talk, have these kinds of conversations. What are your real motivations? What matters to you? What do you feel like your skills are? Where do you need to grow? This seems like a problem. Can I help you have the conversation so you see it as a breakdown and an opportunity to learn? Uh, And that's an ongoing thing. A big part of what I do with my clients, I call the CEO conversation, which is going from being someone who's very effective at getting stuff done to someone who's very effective at attracting, retaining, and managing people who get stuff done. Mm. And it's hard because you probably got into the position of being the boss because you're good at getting stuff done. Surprise, it's not your job anymore. <laughs> the way right. you're, the way the thing that got you there is not gonna keep you there, yeah. which is a, a cliche. Unfortunately, by becoming a cliche, people forget what it means. You actually have to become a different kind of uh, person. Wow. One thing that comes up again and again in this CEO conversation is a willingness to exchange certainty for confidence. For instance, we need a new method of doing X in the organization. If I stay till 2 a.m. and work a few weekends, I can lay out this process in a training program and an incentive program so people will be manipulated into doing it that way. And I will be certain that it will be a high quality process because that's what I do. Right. That's how I got to be the boss. Mm. There's only so many times you can do that. It's exhausting. And you start to lose the people who are ambitious and creative because who wants to be continually told how to do your job? Right. So you end up with a people who are less creative, the best people leave, the ones who need to be manipulated and told stay. So you have this diminishing quality of staff. Instead of that sort of drug of certainty, go for confidence. Have confidence in your people. Have confidence that when they come up with something, you can deal with it. It may not be perfect. It may be worse than what you would do. It may be better than what you would do, which can be just as hard to deal with if they go for something better than you would have done. That's hard on some people. Yeah. But the best managers, best in the sense of highest quality results, best return on investment, most enjoyable lives, are the ones who readily admit that the people working for them are smarter, more energetic, more creative than they are. Hmm. Uh, I told you the story of this fellow I met on an airplane who had this international engineering company. And they did amazing things with material sciences. He was hiring PhDs from top schools. They did this thing that they created what they call pigs. They're these automated devices that go into oil and gas pipelines and inspect the pipelines by remote control. He didn't graduate from college. And he realized his skill was creating an environment where these very smart people could do what they do. Mm -hmm. He's rich. He works part-time. His only scheduled responsibility is every two weeks on a Friday, he cooks lunch for everyone in the kitchen he had installed (laughs) at the company. (laughs) Wow. 
And he said, that's not frivolous. Yeah. That's where he re reminds everyone, the managers are the servants. We're here to make it possible for you to do your jobs, even if I have to feed you. Wow. A lot of what you've just said for that example and before, it also sounds like being a parent too. Creating an environment for people to flourish, mm -hmm. allowing them, allowing your kids to fail so they learn mistakes, not doing everything for them and literally feeding them. So, And we all know who parents who take the certainty approach of controlling every minute, hovering, being the helicopter parent, teenagers that they use their telephones to track them and find out where they are. Yeah. My attitude for years was, once they get to be teenagers, that's when you find out how you did for the first 12 or 15 years. Yeah. If you're tracking them at that point, you get a problem. Yeah. And I've had to take that medicine myself, you know, as, as my kids have all reached and one has just left teenage years, uh, is to just see how I did by watching how they do and then to be available and so on. It's just it, a lot of it is like management. We have the uh, Dumbledore rule since all the kids were raised on Harry Potter, which is there's so many points when you're reading the Harry Potter books and Harry's getting into something where he's discovered some problem and you're just screaming at the book, just tell Dumbledore, <laughs> let him help you. So we're telling the kids, you know, no matter what you get into, whatever the yeah. situation, no matter how stupid a thing you did, yeah. how wrong it was, yeah. call us, <laughs> we will make you safe yeah. There may be consequences after that, but don't get into a deeper and deeper hole because you're embarrassed or worried about how we're going to react. Mm. You know, so give that slack to your employees or your uh, children mm. and be there to support and make sure things don't completely blow up. I'm, I say delegate, not abdicate. Right. Right. So many of these things are applied to families as well. I'll often talk, give some, a client some tip on how to have a conversation, how to explore a difficult situation. And I'll think, gee, I, can, I can't gamble on this novel idea at work. But they'll come back to me a couple of weeks later and say, well, I, I tried this with my wife. It yeah. worked great. So yeah. I'm gonna have that conversation with my boss <laughs> or with this key employee. Yeah. That's the other thing I like about your coaching and in the coaching group is you're a committed listener and you, you help us see stuff for ourselves. But you also have these great models. And one of them you just made me think of was the conversation contract. Mm. I love that one. So talk a little bit about that in the shape of several triangles and how that works and what we can do with that. Well, the conversation triangle and all this material is on the blog. There's a video where I explain it. There's some PDFs where you can see the triangle. And... It comes from transactional therapy. It's from the, these books that were popular in the 1970s and 80s, I'm Okay, You're Okay, Games People Play. They're written by colleagues. What they needed to do was develop a method so that their patients in therapy could have the difficult conversations in their lives. They need to give them some model. And this was adopted by David Sandler as part of the Sandler sales system. And then I took it a few steps further based on my research and experience with people. So you start the conversation, or the first thing you want to handle in the conversation is the top of the triangle, which is the outcome that the two of you can agree on. That's mm -hmm. why I call it a conversation contract. Both sides have to agree. If they don't agree, don't go any further. What's the outcome we want? I teach this to salespeople, and they say, well, I want to make the sale. I can't get them to agree to that as the very first step. That's true, but they probably will agree to, let's have a meeting at the end of which we'll know whether I should buy it. 
yes or no. Right. And the good salespeople realize that an early no is the next best thing to a yes. Yeah. So you say something to the prospect along the lines of, at the end of this meeting, we'll both know whether my coaching is appropriate for you at this point in your career. And you go, yeah, I'd like to know that. Yeah. So would I. So we have an outcome that's agreed. Yeah. The next thing is the process. Do we meet by phone, Skype video, face-to-face? At this meeting, what materials will I need? Should I bring my strategic plan? Should I bring my CFO? Who has to be there? What materials have to be there? Are there some questions I should consider? I tell people, look at the video on the About Me page of my website. It answers most of the questions people ask in the first meeting. If you watch that video first, we'll have a better meeting. Yeah. So there's that process. And we agree on the process. I'll do certain research. They'll do certain research. They'll bring people to the meeting. So we show up at the meeting, ready to go. Yeah. Right. How many, think back to how many bad meetings you've had because you didn't have that conversation first. I've been in meetings literally two weeks ago where people would say, and, and it had been scheduled for a month, the first thing they say is, why are we having this meeting? Yet they're still willing to come to the meeting and, and, and you know, give up 90 minutes of their calendar, but they don't know why they're there. Or, or, even, or even worse, I was in one a two-day summit at a, a, a global 500 company that brought people from all over the world for two days. At the end of the two days, some guy stands up and says, why are we all here? So that's even worse. Yeah, so the why, the outcome, uh, could be missing. But also, they could be clear on the outcome and have forgotten they need a certain person there. Or they'll walk into the room. They've read in advance that they need this person in the room who's the expert on this. And the person's not there and they say, well, we're all here. Let's go ahead anyway. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. So some of the pushback I get from people is, well, if we can't agree on an outcome and a process, what do we do? You don't have a wasted meeting. That's what you do. This yeah. is good news. Yeah. You have fewer meetings by doing the conversation contract. Yeah. And then the final step is the time, which is usually where people start. <laughs> say, which is crazy because you say to someone, have you got time for this? They say, no. It's like you're hitting the knee. You know, foot goes up. Yeah. You got time for this? No. <laughs> so put the time at the end. Yeah. Because after you've agreed to an outcome that you both would like to see in a process that both of you realize is doable, well, of course so. How much time is it worth? Yeah. yeah. You know, my typical first meeting is 90 minutes with a prospect. Can you imagine if my leading question to the owner of a business with 100 or 500 employees is, you don't know me very well. Yeah. Let's carve out 90 minutes to get to know no, each other. No, no. way. Not going to happen. However, if at the end of this meeting, we'll both be clear of whether my coaching is appropriate for you at this time in your career, we're going to have an in-depth, confidential conversation about your work, your family, your goals, what's gotten in your way, things you've tried that haven't worked, the things that just sort of mystify you about where your career is. To do that, we should carve out 90 minutes uninterrupted. Mm-hmm. You go, yeah. That, obviously that would take 90 minutes yeah and that's that's the way it goes so you're getting the difficult parts handled early and everybody goes in then when you walk into the meeting and say okay this is the reason we're going to have the meeting is that still good for you yes we're going to do this preparation did we do it yes now we do it the other thing about the time that often gets left out is the duration people set start times let's meet at 10 o'clock on tuesday great Particularly for salespeople, this is a big trap. They walk into the meeting, they've got a 20-minute slideshow, they want to take 20, 30 minutes of questions, and they need an hour to work out the contract. And you walk in there, you've flown in and loaded for bear, and the president walks in, he said, great, he showed up, and says, uh, I've got 20 minutes, go. Yeah. No, I need an hour. Yeah. Sorry. We 
can lay it all out and say we have a start time and end time and it's it's prepared it's good to go who is your perfect coaching client The, the ideal coaching client has a few criteria one is it's probably someone who is operating a company in the mid-market, 100 to 1,000 employees. I want someone who's got profit and loss responsibility, hiring, fire authority, and at a scale and with some momentum. I don't like to do startups anymore. Did that from the inside and from the outside. The problem is the house is always on fire. Mm-hmm. You can never deal with longer range strategic issues. It's always an emergency. Also, I want that person to have at least one level of managers. Because a lot of what I deal with is how do you get things done by people you're not actually directly in communication with? Right. Getting things done with and through other people and the people that they're getting things done with and through. And that's a challenge, but that's scalable. That's what I'm always telling people. You've gotten to your position because you had some skill. A great physicist, great salesperson, a charismatic, a wonderful administrator. And by the time they call me, that's taking them as far as they're going to go. They can't do that for more hours or any faster or harder. You could do something different. And it's, but getting things done with and through other people, that's infinitely scalable. There's always more people if you've got a good system for doing that. And my favorite example was Barack Obama. 10 years ago, how many people were carrying out his life program? Nobody. Now, a few hundred million. It's just because he was charismatic, he was enrolling, he had a future people cared about, and they were able, they wanted to contribute to that, and they got rewarded in various ways, and that's how you do it. So that is the sort of the job description. When I start to talk to the person, I guess I can reveal this. I'm asking them a lot of questions about themselves and their business and so on. The main thing I'm listening for is, will this person learn and grow? Because for years I've noticed there seem to be a certain proportion of people who have clawed their way to a position of authority just so they don't have to listen to anybody. <laughs> I can't work with that person. Yeah. They have to be willing to listen to me. Yeah. And it's not always obvious which is which. There's one a person, a client I had for a couple of years, several months in, maybe a year in, the, this client's right-hand person was talking to me about one of her duties was whenever a new high-level employee or advisor or professional service person came in, she would give that person the talk, which is basically never tell him what to do. <laughs> she said, you remember that talk, don't you? I said, no, we never had that talk, and it's a good thing. <laughs> so apparently I was the only person he listened to. Wow. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons I was able to be effective is he granted me that status. Wow. But some people just, they won't listen. I was at, I won't say when I did. I, I met, I recently met with a prospect who was clearly not listening to anything. And I, no, thanks. Yeah. Schedule's full. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing in your coaching that you it, it, talk about, and I think you may have used the words, there was really no such thing as work-life balance. It's integrated. So you talk about what you mentioned work, family, health, you know, personal issues. And it's all the same thing. It's one person. It's all the same thing. Yeah. Ideally you're the same person everywhere. Yeah. So let's talk about all of it. I talk about physical fitness. I talk about finance. Yeah. I talk about dealing with your spouse. I, I talk about dealing with your partners and your employees and your bankers. Yeah. 
because one of the things I discovered the hard way along the way is they are all people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for a long time, I back in my the era I mentioned earlier, I thought I could sell features and specifications to job titles. Well, of course, a CFO would want this piece of software. CFO. Turns out it's a person with a career, with concerns, with worries. And once, instead of being a deliverer of specifications, I could be a human being who is trying to contribute and help and be part of something, talking to another human being that had things they were trying to accomplish and so on, then we could do business. Mm. So it just, it, the stuff works everywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, very cool. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. More information is available at TonyMayo.com. We appreciate your comments, suggestions for future topics, and most of all, stories on how you applied the coaching. Our email address is podcast at mayogenuine.com. This podcast is the property of executive coach Tony Mayo, all rights reserved worldwide.